0: The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER.
1: Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. I want to introduce uh, the audience to uh, Matthew uh, Bachi, who wrote a book called Sway. Matt, good morning. How you doing, pal? Doing well. Good
0: morning, Craig. Honored to be here.
1: Thanks for for joining us. And, you know, I'm enthralled with your story uh, on an emotional level because Matthew wrote a book about his life, um, and his life, or at least uh, from a book standpoint, began on the morning of nine eleven. And Matt lost his dad on nine eleven, and uh, from that moment on. Over the course of uh, what seems like a solid decade, uh, Matt went down a really bad rabbit hole. Gambling was part of it, but not the only part of it. Drugs, uh, sexual abuse, and a number of other things that I have a specific correlation to in my life. So I thought it was important for Matt to be able to tell his story. So I appreciate uh, your willingness to join us to go through what I'm sure is a very uh, tough thing to go through. So thank you for that. Of course, of course. So, let, you know, the only way to start is, I suppose, you know, on 9-11. And uh, if you don't mind walking people through your experience on that morning uh, when you found out or you started to find out, you know, that your dad was in the towers. If you don't mind walking people through that moment, I'd appreciate that.
0: Sure. So, you know, as many remember from that day, it was a, it was a beautiful September morning, crystal clear blue sky day. And uh, I, start, I was starting fourth grade. And at about a little bit after nine o'clock in the morning, they pulled me and another kid out of the class and they informed us that a plane hit our dad's building. Um, We were then met in the hallway uh, by both of our younger brothers who were in second grade at the time. And so they took the four of us and they brought us into another room. They told us that the plane hit the building, they were evacuating the tower and that both of our dads were safe. Um, Those other students, their dad was safe. He was on the lower floor. Unfortunately for my brother and I and my other brothers, um, our dad was on the hundred fifth floor of the North Tower at Canada Fitzgerald. So unbeknownst to me at that time, right after the plane hit, about three minutes after actually, my dad phoned my mom and told her that a plane hit the building. And my dad being the prankster that he was, she automatically assumed he was he was joking. Um, she quickly turned the T V on, the line got cut out and she saw what was going on in, in lower Manhattan and uh starts calling him back and forth. They're calling each other, both getting connected to one another, but can't hear each other. They're just constant static on the line. And then finally he gets through to her one last time and ultimately says goodbye and that he loves her. And all of this was obviously unknown to me in that moment. And my mom did what she, what she chose was the, was the smarter move. And I definitely agree. And she kept my brother and I in school. All the kids in my school and it was a small school were getting pulled out one by one um parents were coming in crying hysterically not knowing what was going on obviously everyone was freaking out and at the end of the day my brother nick and i get on the bus and and we're the only ones on the bus pretty much um and uh we get back home um and i should rewind actually um my uncle tony my dad's brother was the last person who spoke to my dad and he called my he saw, he saw what was going on and started calling my dad as well. And this was right after my mom spoke to him. And uh, my dad picked up the phone after my uncle had probably tried calling him 50-plus times in, in, a, in a couple minutes span. And my dad picked up the phone as if it was a normal day. Uh, my uncle was interning at that time. He was just about to start law school, and he was interning in, in uh, Manhattan. And they used to grab lunch together all the time. My dad picked it up, and he just said, hello. Very calm, didn't sound scared, and exhibited the type of type of bravery that he really showed as a man um, and courage. And he didn't show any fear or anything in that moment. And my uncle said, "You know, John, John, get out." And he just said, "Tony, I love you." And to me, he pretty much accepted his fate. I believe in that moment.
1: So um, he was saying he was saying goodbye. He was saying goodbye. Yeah. Got it. So you're 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 in fourth grade. So you're what 12 years nine old years. nine you're nine, nine. Year, you're 9 years old you have younger brothers yo know, at the moment you don't know what's going on but we all obviously kind of have a sense of what's going on your mom is starting to understand the gravity of of what's going on you get home i know there's a lot of family and neighbors are now coming in and out of the house frantic as as many families were dealing with out in Long Island, and you're throughout the five boroughs in Westchester, Connecticut, et cetera. Canada Fitzgerald, the hardest hit of any company uh, on this planet for 9-11. How long after that moment did you guys get the information that your dad had not survived the attacks?
0: Well, it was becoming pretty clear by the end of the day that you know, that he wasn't going to come home, but we held on to that hope, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, three days later, September 14th, that Friday they found him and they came to our house exactly a week after nine eleven to tell us that they found him. Um, so it was for us, we were very lucky and and honestly grateful in some ways that we had those answers. You know, many people still to this day don't, don't have any answers. You know, they, they didn't have find anything. And we were very lucky that we, we were able to, uh, to bury something.
1: I get goose pimples just hearing that story, and while I can't relate to it, I have a strange sense of totally understanding exactly what Matt's saying right there. As you know, this is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, so a quick interruption in my conversation with Matt Bocci here regarding uh, what happened to his family and his dad 20 years ago and then the sad spiral that his life took as a result of what happened 20 years ago. We're going to take a moment of silence at very specific moments in time throughout the day today, uh, honoring the lost souls and the victims of the attacks on 9-11. So the very first moment of silence is coming up now as we approach 9:37. So I hope that you will join me in a brief moment of silence as we observe the exact time that the American Airlines flight number 77 struck the Pentagon. This is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and this will be our first moment of silence on the fan. Thank you for joining me in that moment of silence. Throughout the, this program, we'll do that two more times, both in observance of the time the South Tower fell, and then a little bit later on this morning when United Airlines Flight 93 crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Now, though, back to the conversation with Matt. And his experience at 9-11 and the sad direction his life turned as a result. 9-11 happens, I imagine the next couple months for you at 9 years old is a whirlwind. You know, things don't go immediately south for you in your personal life right then and there. But is there a a tangible moment that you can look back on even at 9, 10, 11 years old where you become a different kid, where you're acting differently, where life is different Beyond the obvious of not having your dad around,
0: well, on nine eleven itself, the plant the seeds were planted. Um, I, when I got home from school that day, and it was, I think, honestly one of the only times I saw it ever on television. I saw an image, a, a video of a person jumping from the building. Subconsciously, so that was embedded in my brain. In the next few years, I stumbled upon these books that my mom purchased that showed timeline photos of the day, and the photos of people jumping were in them and they were very prominent too. Right. So I was fixated on that. And I started at about 10, 11 years old. Um, and you know, as I got older, obviously it grew, but I became obsessed with trying to then figure out what happened to him because all I knew was what I was told, which was that they found him. And then his death was quick. There was no other answers and there was no other details as to what may have potentially happened. So for me, that could have been a a few things. It could have been, you know, asphyxiation, you know, he died when the building collapsed, et cetera, or that maybe he jumped. Um, And when that obsession started to grow, that's when I definitely can look back now and see, first of all, my addiction and and my addictive traits, but also um, the change that I started to show as a person too. Were
1: you ever able to get closure on that issue? Did you find out the manner in which your dad passed?
0: Years later. after I was kind of fed lies, uh, which i 'll get into all of that obviously, but I was fed lies about what potentially happened to him and uh, yeah, but yes, years later, I was able to have that closure and and know exactly what happened um, that he was in the staircase and which is why they found him so quickly, and that um he died probably when the building collapsed, but it, it was told to us that he got hit in the head with something probably and and, and he was alive one moment and gone the next
1: and were and this uh... So weird question. Ask, were you like emotionally, did you want to think that he had jumped or was, were you, are you glad that he didn't like, what what were you looking for and trying to find out that answer to
0: this day? I sort of still contemplate what I was looking for. I, I think in a way I wanted him to have jumped so that I could have tried to find him because that's what I was determined to do. I wanted to find him in one of those photos and, and in some strange way be there for his final moments. Um, I don't, if he were to have done that, I would have not looked at him any differently. I already know how, from what I've read and and, and seen how severe it must've been inside that tower. And it doesn't to me take away from any, any, any person's, in my opinion, faith or what they believe in. You know, they were, they were forced out of that building willingly choose to do that. Sure. Um, but, uh, I think it highlights the severity of what was going on inside that tower, and for whatever reason, um, it really did fascinate me. And, uh, and I'm not really a morbid person, but those sort of um, traits were, were, were certainly being portrayed as as I was getting older, um, because I would talk about death a lot.
1: Did you ever contemplate taking your own life?
0: In addiction, I tried a couple times, um, but. Uh, obviously I wasn't successful, but, um, I was very lost. You know, I I think I, you know, now I'm in a really good place mentally right now, Yeah. but when I was 12, 13 years old, and then as when I went through my sexual abuse situation, um, I was definitely dealing with depression. Um, certainly anxiety. I am an anxious person to this day, but, um, my mental health was, was certainly prevalent, definitely, in those early years. Yeah, addiction,
1: you know, for a lot of people, people become addicted to drugs, alcohol, and and in my case, gambling, because it gives them relief from, uh, you know, some type of painful event. Uh, It it lets a lot of us kind of live in a cocoon where we feel better, right? We we can avoid the demons that come up uh, from sexual abuse, from, you know, other life situations that we don't know how, you know, to process or handle. Um, I did it. You know, I was uh, sexually abused as a, as a kid. I don't talk about it much at all. Uh, it came out, you know, in the sentencing phase of my trial. It's a part of who I am. It's a part of, you know, why I am the way I am in a lot of regards. It's a part of the reason why gambling became so powerful for me because it gave me the safe cocoon where I felt protected from uh, my demons. Uh, you went down that road with... With drugs and gambling. And we're going to get into that part of your story here in a moment on Hello, My Name is Craig.
0: Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig
1: on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton. And supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. Uh, Craig Carton with Matthew Bocci, who's uh, the son of a a man who unfortunately lost his life on 9-11. And then the ensuing years... Got really bad for Matt, and he was uh, brave enough to tell his story and wrote a book. The name of the book is Sway, and you can get it on Amazon or wherever else you you get your books. So without, you know, I don't want to, you know, just jump forward too far, Matt. But when we went into the break, they were talking about how, you know, we're both addicts, and we kind of used, you know, substances and or gambling to hide from our realities. You know, in addition to losing your dad in fourth grade, you also were sexually abused by an uncle. Yo, who's a very popular guy in the family and on multiple occasions, uh, he sexually abused you. So you had a lot of things going on that I imagine you wanted to escape and hide from. How old were you when you first turned to drugs for that escape?
0: I picked up my first drink when I was 14 years old. And I'd be lying to you if I told you that that first drink was that moment I had been searching for my whole life because it wasn't. Um, I was very short and I probably weighed 110 pounds soaking wet. I got very drunk and I, I was throwing up and I was like that, that I'm not going to do this ever again. Um, I started smoking weed recreationally in high school, but again, wasn't addicted to any of it. Right. Um, I was very diligent with my schoolwork. I was a good student. Um, I did have big aspirations. I still do have big aspirations for myself, but I envisioned my life to be something big as, as a kid in high school. and. Drugs and alcohol didn't grip me the way they did until my later years, um, my later adolescent years. But when I got into college, um, when I started dabbling with painkillers, that's it started with it started with Adderall and, and other sorts of pills. But the the, pill, the prescription pills is where everything took off for me, um, and everything went downhill very quickly too.
1: Did um, did, you, my- did you get that? What I, did you get what I'm talking about? Did you feel some sense of mental emotional relief? You know, you're you you know you're the kid you're a 911 kid for lack of a better term yo know, so there's a decent number of people who know what that's like but a lot of people don't so you did immediately feel once you found whatever it was for you whether it was, you know pharmaceutical drugs oxy or whatever it may be you did immediately discover wow this makes me feel pretty good yeah
0: it made me feel good and it, and it shut off my brain right it shut off all the the thoughts that seemed to corrode me at every any given moment really um no longer was i the child of 9-11 no longer was i the victim of a sexual of sexual abuse you know I, I was just able to feel normal so to speak and the pain was numbed and so once that pain was numbed and all emotions and feelings were shut off from me i was i was determined and keen to chase that that specific type of high not even the high from drugs but just the fact that i can feel shut off and 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 at peace and serene and 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 not have to worry about any of the other things that I went through in the past. And the fact that I have always felt labeled and judged. So, yeah, that relief was, was certainly pr- present. And it was something that I was, I didn't want let, to let go of.
1: And at the height of it, how bad was the
0: addiction? I can go into the nitty-gritty. Um, I was addicted to opiates, benzodiazepines, cocaine, uh, you know, weed, and I washed it all down with alcohol. At, at one point in my addiction at, at the height, um, I was supplementing between multiple types of opiates, but uh, up to 900 milligrams of Oxy a day, 20 milligrams of Xanax a day, and at times an eight ball of Coke. Um, I don't say that to try to brag or anything like no, that. No, sure. My, and that was over the span of four, four and a half years or so. Um, things escalated very quickly for me. So if you, uh, your family
1: had to notice that you, there was something wrong, right? Your family was in tune with you. You have a loving family. You have younger brothers, your mom, you know, a stepdad. At some point, I got to imagine someone said, Matt, what's going on? Yeah.
0: 2013, I, I was trying to trying to get help. Uh, I had admitted to my mom that I was addicted to painkillers. And that was not even at the, at the worst moment of it all. Um, I went to my first detox in March 2013. Quickly relapsed when I got out. Went back to college. Again, another stint in the summer. And then in the next two years, I was ripping and running. And, uh, yeah, everyone noticed. And I had legal trouble then. And um, everyone was pretty aware. It's just I wasn't willing and able. Well, I was able, but I wasn't willing to stop. I wasn't willing to surrender.
1: Did you have a death wish? I think in
0: some ways I did, yeah. I, uh, I was... At a point in my life where I was okay if I didn't wake up the next morning.
1: Got it. Got it. At any of these moments in time, I just wonder, you know, you talk in the book at one point where, you know, when you were much younger, right after 9-11, where you thought you saw your dad or an image of your dad in the backyard when you were Mm -hmm. messing around in the leaves and whatnot. And I wonder over the course of the three or four years that you were spiraling out of control. Did you ever have a conversation with your dad or did you ever feel like you saw him or had any type of tangible closure with your dad? Did that ever take place?
0: Not until my defining moment where I decided to get sober, but um, I had many foxhole prayers to my dad. I was in in, in and out of. Different hoods and different, you know, cities, and surrounding myself with people who I should not have been hanging out with, and uh, I really had no regard for my own life. And um, I think I was like an adrenaline junkie too. Like I, I chased the high of going to places I didn't belong. The fact that danger was imminent, and I, it didn't matter to me. I enjoyed that feeling. There was a couple. I had many run-ins with the police, and then in those moments, yeah, I was, Dad, please get me out of this. I'll, you know, I, I'll, I'll stop. I promise, I'll stop. Uh, of course I didn't, you know, right?
1: I know there's one point when you got arrested, you had like 50, uh, oxy pills on you and, you know, you called your uncle up to try to help you out. So, you know, you were, you were doing things, you were getting a lot of attention. I'm not sure if you wanted the attention, but you were doing things like you had to know, I'm going to get caught doing this, right? Like as much as you were hiding the addiction for as long as you could. There's also a part of it, and I feel the same way about me for gambling, where, you know, I was I was a liar. I was hiding things. I wasn't honest with people, um, whatever it took to allow me to gamble more. But at the same time, I was doing things that you know someone's going to find out you're doing it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, well, I had this immaculate web of lies that was spread among so many people. And I'd have to keep up with each, you know, group of lies to each person that I told Mainly my mom and I had all these different cons that I was pulling off—fake bank statements, fake receipts and invoices, all this stuff—and I knew at one point in time it was going to come crashing and burning, and it did, obviously. But um, it was—it it became very difficult at times to keep up with it all. And uh, and as everyone is watching on the outside, right, watching this downfall that I'm certainly in the midst of, I'm I'm still thinking that I'm keeping it together well enough that people are believing that I'm okay, you know?
1: Yeah, no, I trust you. I know that part of the story all too well, man. It's, <laughs> you know, you can, you, you're the capacity for dishonesty is amazing. And we're going to get to the fact that you're sober now, but I, I, I guarantee, I know the words you're going to say, the amount of, of open mental space you have now compared to, you know, when you were chasing and lying and trying to, where's the money coming from? Who am I going to for the next pill and all that stuff is people don't get it. It's like, it's almost like our brains are on a, a, a perpetual vacation now that we're not trying to figure out how to, you know, cover our next lie. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's crazy. So how do, you did mention that gambling was a part of it. you know, obviously not the biggest part, but uh, how did gambling uh, rear its ugly head for you? Well,
0: this is uh, this is a sneak preview for, uh, for the discussions I'm having with some uh with some agents and publishers about a second book, but I'm almost six years sober. Um, I haven't had a drink or drug in almost six years. And uh, about well, when I was in college, I started. I was interacting with some people who were bookies and whatever, and, and I was getting an understanding of how spreads worked and all that type of stuff. Didn't get into it. I didn't have the money. I couldn't even keep up with drug addiction. There was no way I could deal with gambling. When I was about three years sober, uh, roughly, I you know I, I'd have to fact check the timeline on this, but my first. Bet in sobriety was the Patriots Falcons game Super Bowl, Got it. and I bet I bet the Patriots money line, and so obviously such an exhilarating game. When they came back and won, I was like, "Holy, holy crap! That, this is amazing!"
1: So for three hours, so, you're cursing the TV, and for the last fifteen minutes, you're the happiest guy on the planet.
0: Exactly, just filled with joy. Um, so, in the next couple of years, uh, you know, listen, I, I had very, I had some really high moments, of course, as. I, I, Probably every gambler does. Right. But it always came crashing and burning, as it always does. And uh, I got to a really harsh realization. It was actually the day that Kobe Bryant died um, where I said, wow, life is so short and I can't be going around spreading a message of hope, talking about my story of of resilience and inspiration with all the other things that I went through. And meanwhile, I'm gambling in in the darkness. Right. And I'm hiding this big secret from everyone. And I knew it was a problem. It also progressed the same way drugs and alcohol did for me. But I had so many moments of big wins and et cetera that I also dissuaded myself. I was like, well, listen, like, you're doing well. Why are you going to stop, right? Uh, You never walk away from that table with, with you know, full-handed chips. So I never did. I had to come to that realization on my own. Uh, Actually, you know, it's it's been about uh, a year and a half since I've gambled. Good. I knew that I can't engage. I can't obviously pick up a drink or a drug, right? Uh, All I have is today. But I also knew I couldn't be engaging in sketchy behaviors and and trying to fill the void in other ways, right? And that's what it comes down to ultimately for me is I have to live a clean and sober life in all regards. Mm -hmm. And it can't just be around drinking and drugging.
1: I want to stop the story there for a moment. As you know, this is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. There will be uh, ceremonies, of course, throughout the day. And then later, of course, the the Mets and Yankees uh, will have a very emotional uh, evening over at City Field as they play head-to-head. Throughout this uh, day, we will be taking uh, a moment of silence uh, in observance of certain moments in time that took place 20 years ago. So as we approach 9.59 in the morning now, uh, please join us for a moment of silence in observance of the exact time the South Tower fell to the ground. Thank you so much for that. We continue on now with more Hello, My Name is Craig. Talking to Matthew uh, Bocci, who wrote a book called Sway. Uh, it's about his life. Having found out, you know, having lost his dad on nine eleven, and then uh, the kind of really ugly rabbit hole, his life went down. Glad to say he came out the other side of it, and he's alive and well, and able to join us today. Just to wrap up the drug part of your story, What was the uh, pivotal moment? What was the the epiphany? Walk us through the day that you woke up and said, I'm done, I can't do more drugs, and you came clean about everything. What was that day like? And why did did that day happen?
0: Well, I was arrested and facing three felony charges. Uh, I was 23 years old. I had, obviously, a long life ahead of me. But in that moment it seemed to be coming to an end. Um, I knew that if I failed the drug test, once I was put on probation, there was a really good possibility I was going to go to jail and there was no way around that. No matter how good my lawyer was, the the charges were clear as day. Um, I was able to get, thankfully um, some of the charges were reduced, but I still had to be sober. Um, I couldn't stop. So On the morning of July 22nd, 2015, I had a meeting with my probation officer. It was the first meeting that I had. And I was told by my lawyer that if I were to pass that first drug test, realistically, I would not be called up for another six to eight months or something like that. I only had a year probation. And at that point in time, I was on probation already for two months. So I purchased this detox mouthwash and two bags of fake urine because you know, like any other addict, right? Why would I stop if I can get around the test some way? So this detox mouthwash would then provide me with about 45 minutes of clean saliva. And it tasted awful. And you put it in your, you, you know, you put it in your mouth, sw- swiggle it around and then swallow it. And so I go into this drug test, um, that morning and, uh, I meet with my probation officer and I'm looking at my watch as the time is slowly but surely diminishing and I'm realizing if I don't get in there and she does this mouse swab test soon enough, uh, I'm, I'm screwed. So I'm sitting across from her desk on her keyboard is the mouse swab test in the little, in the little packaging and she's having me sign all these forms and she says to me, um, if, you don't fail, if you don't pass the stroke test, we can call diapers because one of your brothers is under, like, under 18 Et cetera, et cetera. And she looks at me right in the eyes and she asks, are you going to pass the drug test?
1: And of course, you said, of course, I'm going to pass it. I said, yeah.
0: I'm <laughs> like, I'm, I'm good. I'm
1: good. You know, there's commonality in that. Regardless of the addiction, we all kind of have our, for lack of any better term, come to Jesus moment where we recognize, all right, You know, this is it. I can't continue to live this way. I want to stop the story there for a moment. This, for us, and this show, Hello, My Name is Craig, will be the last moment of silence. So I hope for those of you that are listening, uh, you will join me in a brief moment of silence and observance of the exact time, 10.03, that the United Airlines Flight 93 crashed near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We'll do that now. Thank you for that. We continue on now with, hello, my name is Craig. You're figuring if if she gives me that test in the next five minutes and the product works, I'm good to go.
0: And I realized to myself in that moment, I'm like, wow, I I thought this is going to be the best comment I've ever and may ever pull off. And I'm high as a kite. And so she's looking at me again. And she says it one more time. Are you sure you're going to pass? And I said, yes. She's, uh, She's like, okay, okay. And she goes to bend down, and she grabs a cup, and she says, go pee in the cup. And I didn't bring my fake pee with me, of course. So I go into the bathroom. They have an angled mirror so that the guy who goes in there with you makes sure you're not using anything to mess with the test and use fake, you know, whatever. So he doesn't look, and I'm sitting there. So in your mind, you're
1: saying, if I had my fake urine with me, I could have pulled it off. The guy's not looking. I didn't bring it. Now you know you're screwed. If you yeah. fail the test, which you're gonna, now you got a real problem on your hands. So yep. you go back into the room, you meet the probation officer, and what do you you tell her, uh, or does she tell you you failed, or do you say, "Ma'am, I did. I know I'm going to fail the urine test."
0: No, I already failed it. And I said, "Listen," I. She's like, "I don't know." She's like, "You've had a, about two months notice of this test," and I. And she's like, "When's the last time you got high?" And I was like, "About four days ago." And she's like, "Okay, when's the last time you actually got high?" I was like, "This morning." Right. And um. And then she said, listen, I don't know if this is a cry for help or you genuinely can't stop. And I, and I like cut her off and I was like, no, no, I, I really do want to stop. I, I really do. And she's like, OK, I'll give you one last shot. And if you come back in a month and you're clean, I'll drop your charges. But if not, you're going to go to jail. And I said, OK. And, and I went that home was it. That day. Yeah, I went home that day and um, and I was by myself. And this is mainly one of the reasons I didn't consider myself an alcoholic was because I didn't drink excessively every single day. I didn't drink during the day either. I also consumed massive amounts of of narcotics, but that's besides the point. And I made myself a drink. I rolled myself a joint, and I went to go smoke it outside. And when I walked outside, I got hit by that, once again,
1: beautiful blue sky day. It's Matthew Bocci. The name of the book is Sway. We'll continue one more segment right after this on The Fan.
0: Back to more of Hello, My Name is
1: Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. Matthew Bocci joins us. The name of his book is Sway. It's a fascinating life uh, from the moment he found out that he lost his dad on 9-11. On the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, you go home you got the joint rolled, you got the bourbon in the glass, you walk outside, and the day reminds you of Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001, the day you lost your dad, and what happened?
0: I started crying. And for me to cry in active addiction was a rarity to say the least. So uh, in that moment, I I say, Dad, please give me a sign, I need help. Um, On September 12th, 2001, my mom was, was told to look for the signs. You know, it was pretty clear that my dad wasn't coming home. That night, a fly landed on her nightstand, and that was her indication that my dad wasn't coming home. And that fly would be our sign of my dad, and it was a symbol of my dad, and would be around in the next 15-plus years. At, at that point, it was 15-plus years. And um, so in that moment, in July 2015, I'm crying. I said, Dad, please give me a sign. and need help. And this fly lands on the deck railing that I'm leaning against. And it's literally about five inches away from my arm. And it's just moving around in a circle and stopping and looking at me. And again, moving around in a circle and stopping and looking at me. And I pulled out my phone and I recorded it. And I said, you know what? Enough's enough. And I said, this is it. I'm going to get help. Um, I walked inside and um, I called up a detox facility and I said, listen, I'm not sober right now. I need a bed tonight. And they said, we can't get you in tonight. We can get you in Friday. I said okay fine book it I, I want that bed and i had obviously the the legal stuff that i told you about but then i also had all these other things that i had done um i had this credit card scheme that i was pulling uh, my mom was dealing with all this fraud stuff i had used her cards fraudulently and and i sent her this long message in a minute to everything and i said i'm going to get help on on friday i'm, I'm going to detox hmm. and i've been sober since then um it's not been an easy road obviously but Um, I went to that detox for a week and then I went to a rehab stay for another 28 days. And then, uh, ultimately I went to a sober facility for uh, a sober house, uh, for, uh, about a year. And, um, that's when I actually ended up coming forward about the sexual abuse, um, that happened to me as a kid and started to heal.
1: How did your family react to your revelation about your uncle?
0: Well, It was certainly a surprise you know because i put on this facade that everything was okay um i told myself i would never tell a soul about it uh apparently i did tell one or two people when i was under the influence but i don't remember it um and uh i said to myself there's no way i can repeat this to anyone and and i wouldn't and so from that point on i was okay i was around him a a lot and people would never suspect that anything happened because I wouldn't allow them to come to that realization or that, that assumption. So um, when I, he always had this creepy vibe about him, but it was never um, – no I don't think anyone ever suspected he would do something the way he did. And, and I don't, we didn't get into all the, de- the nitty-gritty and the details, Brad. but what ended up leading to it was him telling me, after he had been tr- grooming me and whatnot, he told me my father jumped. Um, he knew that's what I was looking for. Um, and in that moment of him telling me that, that's when it, it started. Um, and so for me, I'm looking for a father figure. I'm looking for someone to talk to me about my dad and talk to me about what happened that day because no one, no one wanted to engage in those conversations anymore. It was too powerful for them. It was too emotional. And for a 14-year-old kid to be looking at people jumping from the, like the, the North Tower or the World Trade Center, it, it was a lot for them to want to discuss that.
1: So he, and your uncle used your dad's death on 9/ 11 to groom you for sexual abuse. Ugh: Correct.
0: And so I came forward. I told my uncle Tony, who's I'm very closest to this day, at times I look at him as, a, as an older brother, um, I called him, and I, I was supposed to meet with him for lunch that day, And uh, I was home making amends to family. And I was supposed to leave to go back to New Hampshire to my sober living facility. And I call him and I said, listen, I got to tell you something. And I tell him, uh, when I was 14 years old, uh, I, I was sexually abused and, and I go into the details about who did it and what happened. And, um, he said to me, I am in Anglewood, New Jersey right now, which is the last place I was with your dad before he died. And, um, he's like, I'm going to meet you at your house. And this is, this is his son to me that we're going to do something about this. And, um, I told them that I was willing and, 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 and able and I wanted to, to seek justice and, and pursue legal action. And I did. And it was very difficult, you know, to have to tell my whole family about what happened. And they were devastated you sure. know, because not they all knew about the drugs. They all knew about my obsession with my dad. They didn't know about this secret that I've been holding on to for, for nearly 10 years. And, um, and no one knew, really. And so um, it was hard to relive it all and to talk about it. But I have seen... The most healing in my life by being open and vulnerable and getting it off my chest, because I know by doing so, I can maybe inspire and help someone else who's going through something. Yeah, it's really
1: brave. It's really brave. It's so brave and courageous. You know, I have one of my biggest life's regret is not coming forward, not being strong enough to tell the story. Uh, and to this day, I really haven't ever gotten into it. And, and no one needs to know the nitty-gritty of it. That's just salacious. Uh, you know, people don't need to know, you know the exact acts that took place. It's the fact that you, know, you were sexually abused and I was sexually abused. Uh, and it's one of my biggest regrets as an adult you know, that I haven't been able to you know, really get into it and have that conversation. Because you could help so many people by being open. And I agree with you. Like Even writing your book, I'm sure, was cathartic for you. But living your life honestly and just being open with your the people who love you the most because those are the people you hurt the most. Um, it's just amazing that you have the strength and courage to do it, and you should know that it's awesome that you do it. Like I'm, I've never met you before in my life, but you know I'm proud of you for doing it because we need more people to come forward and be honest and tell their stories and admit to their frailties too. It's it's okay to be an addict. It's okay to admit that you're an addict. And it's even better when you're able to admit it and you can ask somebody for help. You know, I've said many times on the show that picking up the phone saved my life. You know, I don't—I didn't have a death wish per se, but, you know, I had a moment in time where, you know, if I didn't wake up the next morning, I was going to be all right. You know, and I picked up the phone and a friend saved my life, so I get that part of it. Before I let you go, Matt, do you believe that... Your dad saved your life at that, that moment of clarity when you saw the fly that, you know, your your uncle happened to be in Englewood at that moment of place. He was with your dad a lot. That, in a weird way, your dad did play a role in your sobriety and saving you?
0: Absolutely. I mean, he's been there every step of the way. Um, I'm, I know you're familiar with 12-step programs. I consider my dad, and I, I use my dad as my higher power. Um, and for me, prayer and meditation are a big part of my life. But sometimes with prayer, I, uh, I speak to my dad, my higher power, as if he's sitting right here with us, you know, t- and just talking. And um, it's been very, very consoling for me. And it allows me to put things into perspective. But, um, you know, one thing, I've used my dad's death now for the better, right? I've used the fact that he was unhappy and uh, he, he wanted to find his true passion. And instead for me, instead of working in finance and thinking that, by doing that, I'm keeping his legacy alive. I'm pursuing my passion. I'm pursuing what makes me feel fulfilled and what I know is helping other people. And so that's what I'm doing today. And um, I think he'd be very
1: proud of that. I think your mom's probably pretty proud of you, too. She is. She is. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and Like I said, I'm proud of you also, and I've never met you. But the name of the book is Sway. It's Matthew Bocce. Uh, real quick, how are your brothers doing? The rest of your family, everybody's in a good, in a good place now 20 years later?
0: Everyone is good. Um, we are all healthy and, and happy, and, yeah, everyone's living good lives.
1: Well, listen, I appreciate you sharing your story. I really do, and I'm glad you had the time to join us this morning. And I suggest to everybody, whether you have a connection to 9-11 or not, it's a, it's a real-life story. It's called Sway. You can get it on Amazon and all the other book outlets you go to. His name is Matthew Bocce, and he's a survivor. And uh, he's alive today to tell his story, and uh, I'm glad that he is. Matt, thanks so much for joining us, pal. Appreciate it. Thanks,
0: Greg.